You're listening to ReachMD, and this is COVID-19 on the front lines. The following episode has been brought to you by the American College of Chest Physicians. Chest is an internationally trusted source for clinical updates and advancing patient care across the landscape of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. With clinician members at the center of this pandemic, we are closely monitoring COVID-19 and regularly making resources available to help you navigate the challenges of this public health crisis. Hello, my name is Dr. Mike Christian. I'm from the executive of the Task Force for Mass Critical Care. In the next 15 minutes, we'd like to speak to you about why triage and a battle plan for COVID-2019. We made this presentation due to a number of questions we've been receiving recently. The first question, why triage? Why is triage done? Why is triage even necessary potentially in COVID-19? The next question that certainly clinicians and governments are asking us is, when to triage? Then finally, the question I think we're all asking is, when is it ethical to triage at all? By the end of this talk, hopefully you will have some answers to these questions, to an imbalance between demand and supply. In this case, we're specifically talking about an imbalance between the supply and demand of critical care resources. We think about triage when demand exceeds supply, and we'll go more into that shortly. The primary issue is how much greater is the demand over the supply? What is the size of this gap, what we call the delta? Personally, this is the most important number for me in this pandemic. I would put this number, the delta, up on the wall of every single emergency operations center and use that as the focus of all efforts that work to mitigate and motivate people to mitigate that, uh, that gap. But in order to really know what the gap is, first we have to know what the demand is. And to understand the demand, we can do that in a few ways. First off, modeling can help us get a sense of a range of a minimum and maximum demand, but this is mostly used for planning. In the response, what we really do know are actual numbers. We need to have what we call situational awareness as to what the demand is on the system at every moment in time. Similarly, on the supply side, we need to know exactly, first off, what is the inventory of the supply that we have? What are all the key critical care resources? And we need to be able to track and understand how they're used and consumed at every moment and all times throughout the disaster. As I said, we need situational awareness. In this case that we're talking about today, we're not talking about small or moderate uh, gaps or differences, excesses in demand over supply. These are handled usually at the local and regional level through conventional and contingency surge strategies. Things like bringing in extra staff, uh, expanding to overflow ICUs, moving patients to other hospitals. That's the routine type of management and doesn't require triage in the sense that we're discussing. In the case we're talking about here today, we're talking about an overwhelming demand across the entire province or state, and in some cases even countries, and that this demand exceeds the supply uh, beyond any magnitude uh, that is capable of responding. In this case, we use crisis surge strategies, one of which is triage. But before we ever get to triage, we have to think about how we can minimize and mitigate the demand. The first thing we do to address the demand are public health control measures in a pandemic. These are things like case finding, isolation and quarantine, social distancing, lockdowns that we're experiencing right now, and then when they're available, immunizations. 
aggressive measures being done well in places like Canada, South Korea, and other countries have made a big impact on the demand. Whereas in countries such as the UK, US, and Italy, where these have been done late or poorly, we see the impact in terms of surge occurring. The next option to try and decrease the demand is treatment. So just like we have antibiotics for infections to prevent sepsis and patients become critically ill, we need antivirals and other treatments to stop patients who have COVID from getting sicker and requiring critical care. Research is definitely being done all across the world, led by the health World Health Organization and, and other institutions, but there's still more to do. We need to improve the effectiveness and coordination of the research response, and we need to mobilize the entire research infrastructure of countries to get this done in a timely manner. Finally, we're on to triage. As I mentioned before, we're not talking about the type of triage that occurs in emergency departments on a day-to-day -day basis where you prioritize the sickest person to get the most attention. We're talking about triage when resources are scarce to target them to do the greatest good for the greatest number of people. A couple of ways triage can do this and decrease demand is by identifying the patients who are most likely to benefit from triage. We want the patients who are sickest and most likely to benefit to be able to go to the ICU and to get the resource. On a day-to-day -day basis in ICUs, when we have lots of resources, we often admit patients that aren't really ill enough to require ICU, but they go there just for monitoring. In a pandemic, we can't do that. But we also have to look at potentially excluding people who are too sick to really benefit. Again, in a day-to-day -day basis, we use all of our resources for patients that even have very slim chances of, of surviving. But in a pandemic, when resources are scarce, we have to make difficult decisions. These are life and death decisions. And it's only ethical to address, uh, to do triage after we address both demand and supply issues through a crisis surge response. And that's what I'm going to talk about now. How do we address the supply side of the issue? Because again, we can't triage ethically until we've addressed that. The first factor when we look at the supply side is staff. Critical care requires ICU doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists to provide that care. In order to have the staff, you first need to make sure that they're well and able to come to work and confident enough. We do that providing, through providing adequate PPE, that's personal protective equipment. We also need to look at how we can expand staff. We do this through bringing non-intensive care clinicians into the ICU to work in care teams with ICU staff to expand the number of people that we can, look, that we can take care of. Plans have to be in place for this. We need just-in-time uh, training for the non-ICU staff. We have to use simulations to improve their confidence. All this work has to be in place to try and increase the supply and ability to provide critical care. The next thing we talk about is stuff. And the stuff that is most valuable right now in this pandemic, as everyone knows, is ventilators. The first thing we look at in terms of increasing the number of ventilators is ask, is there a stockpile? If there isn't a stockpile, why isn't there a stockpile? Certainly there'll be a day of reckoning post this pandemic where we sit back and ask if we've prepared and planned enough for it. This pandemic wasn't a surprise. It's been predicted for a long time. However, we can't stay focused on that right now. That that ship has sailed. We have to play the hand we've been dealt. And we can hold some hope for efforts such as what's being done by, ICE, by Dyson in the UK to try and 
create more ventilators. But until we do that, until we have those, we really have to focus on finding every single ventilator that's available. We need an inventory of all ventilators in all hospitals, including the old ventilators that may be downstairs in the basement and not used right now. Ventilators that are in teaching institutions like colleges for nurses and respiratory therapists that aren't usually used for care, but used for education. Even veterinary ventilators. So I know certainly in the US, one of the large veterinary schools uh, that's attached to a university bought the same ventilators as the hospital so they could actually use these during a surge. Also anesthetic gas machines can also do ventilation. We need to make sure we identify every single one of those in hospital operating rooms and use those, as well as community clinics. One of the ways to do this is to look at supplier lists and, and lists of people who maintain ventilators in the community and, and anesthetic machines and ask them, you know, use that to find every single ventilator that's out there. When we're dealing with stuff, we look at strategies of conserving, substituting, adapting, reusing, and reallocating. This particularly applies to things like consumables. It's not just the ventilators and the hard equipment we need for providing critical care. We need things like sedatives and antibiotics. So how do we conserve these? Is there a plan in place to make sure that we're not using them unnecessarily to minimize the wastage of these? Are plans in place to change doses and frequencies and routes of administration so that staff don't have to go in as much and we don't have as much waste of drugs? Are plans in place to substitute alternatives? What is the second and third line drugs? What are the stocks of those? Are they available? Do we have resources to get more? Have we looked at things like spending, extending expiry dates for drugs that are just about to expire so we can still use them? For things like ventilator circuits and PPE masks that are usually disposable and single use only, have we looked at whether it's possible to reuse them and reprocess them? Do we have a plan in place? Have we spoken to our infection control colleagues? Have we spoken to the manufacturer about how to do this? It's only after we've done all these things we even get to thinking about or talking about reallocation, which is triage. The next topic is space, space to provide critical care. We need a complete inventory of every room in every hospital as to whether it has oxygen, suction, electricity, water, and space available for the equipment to provide critical care. And for those rooms who don't have that equipment in those facilities, what is required to convert them? Critical care is best provided in hospitals. It's more important to move less sick patients out of hospitals to alternate care sites and temporary facilities rather than trying to care for critically ill patients outside of a hospital. Critical care is about more than just ICUs and machines. You need the support services that help us when provide critical care. X-ray machines, CTs, uh, interventional procedures, surgery for some patients. We need access to our subspecialty colleagues and the testing that they can provide. All this is very difficult to provide in temporary facilities. Sometimes it's necessary, but first we have to maximize all space in hospitals before we do that. The next factor that we need to address is what we call C3, or in short, command control and communication. Basically, we're asking who's in charge. This is not the public health officials. You know, they're doing an excellent job, the chief medical officers of health, focusing on public health control measures, but we need someone with their eye on the delta. We need someone who's in charge of the overall response, and particularly the healthcare response, and knows and understands all of the things that we're talking about on the supply side who understands hospitals and, and knows about medicine and uh, patients. I'm not one for frivolous war analogies, but given the current state and the potential scale of loss of life that we're facing, if it's not appropriate now to use one, I don't know when it is. In this situation, what we need is our D-Day general. 
we need someone who's going to develop the overall strategies to address the Delta, to deploy tactics, to rally our healthcare troops. Every province and state should have a named individual who is accountable for managing this response. They need to have the appropriate knowledge of surge response. They have to have the appropriate skills and experience in doing this. For example, one of our task force members, Dr. John Hicks in Minnesota, is the incident uh, commander there for the healthcare response. In the United Kingdom, there's Professor Dr. Keith Willett, who's the strategic incident director. We need to ask who's doing this in every other state, province, and potentially country. Obviously, uh, good leaders don't lead in isolation. They need excellent leadership skills and entire teams to support them. But we need to know who's in charge. We need someone who spends the focus of their time, day in and day out, on how do we mitigate this gap and to save the most number of lives and avoid triage, if at all possible. The final factor we're going to consider today are systems. As discussed earlier, we need a system in place that can provide situational awareness about the supply and demand status. If it comes to it, we also need a system to provide triage. This system must be able to design a protocol, provide an infrastructure for supporting triage, and ensure a legal framework is in place to allow it to occur. Most importantly, the system has to be able to decide when is the right time and ethical time to triage based upon the situational awareness of the supply and demand imbalance after we've maximized our surge. Beyond this, the system for triage has to be able to monitor the outcome for both patients that are triaged as as, as well as all patients. And then, based upon this information, modify the protocol if necessary. We have to remember that the last pandemic was 100 years ago, long before modern medicine or intensive care were ever around. Although there's lots of triage plans and protocols proposed right now, none of them have ever actually been tested in a pandemic. We have to be prepared to modify them if necessary to ensure we're targeting the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Of course, we also need a healthcare system that is robust and well-prepared. If you're in an area that hasn't been hit by the pandemic yet or hasn't reached the peak of the pandemic, now is the time to prepare. Healthcare systems must be working to do this full out. You will not get this time back. Beyond the healthcare system, however, we need a whole-of-government response. With supply chains disrupted and, and life turned upside down with all these various public health control measures, we need to ensure that the electricity to run ventilators is still on. We need water to wash our hands. We have to have transit systems running to get people to work, particularly healthcare workers and key workers. Overall, society has to keep functioning. We would suggest, however, that beyond this, though, in this situation, we need a whole-of-society response, just like we saw during the wars. We've seen touching gestures recently of people in lockdown applauding from their homes for the healthcare workers. This is hugely motivating for people and shows that the public wants to help. We have to think about ways to do this and mobilize all of society for this response. So much of what I've talked about already has been around planning and the need for data and tactics and coordination. We have millions of people sitting at home right now that are bright, intelligent people who work in fields that do this every day in terms of managing data, collecting information, doing analysis. We need to think of ways to mobilize them to help the usual healthcare system and government workers who are stretched to capacity right now, and we need everyone's effort to do this. They don't have to come into hospitals, but we can think about how we can mobilize them remotely to support this. It's only after we've done all of these things that triage is ethical. So thank you for spending this time with me and listening to our battle plan for COVID-19.
If you want more information, you can see our second uh, consensus statement, which was published in Cheston 2014. And you can contact us at our email, tfmcc at the University of Minnesota. Thank you, good luck, and stay safe. For the latest CHEST updates, guidelines, expert advice, clinical resources, and more, we invite you to visit our COVID-19 webpage at chestnet.org. Thank you for your service, and please stay well.